if you think about success, you can try to catch lightning in a bottle, which is like winning the lottery. And again, that's in a lot of ways how legacy Halo Top feels to me. Or you can try to position yourself for the best chance at success to make it probable instead of lucky that it happens. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Doug Bowton, who is the CEO of Gatsby Chocolate and Halo Top International. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be oh, here. Hey, Forrest, it's going to be a fun conversation. So you know, to get started, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, you were the co-founder and present top, uh, president of Halo Top Creamery, but before that, were you were a lawyer. So how'd you make this leap from being a lawyer to, you know, revolutionizing the world of ice cream? You know, I, I, uh, I always like to say it's a straight line between taking the bar exam and, and making ice cream, right? But um, for me, you know, it, it was always, I went to law school, I graduated college in 07. So it was right in the, right as the kind of 08 crisis was happening and the job markets were falling apart. So it was a pretty easy decision for me to say, hey, I'll, I'll kind of keep the school thing going for a little bit. And I looked into law school at the time. It was a three-year program. Uh, but one of the main things I did was I looked at a, a list of the Fortune 500 CEOs, uh, and it had their degrees um, beside them. And a ton of them had, you know, MBAs and business degrees. But I noticed a ton had law degrees, uh, the JD. So I figured I could go to law school. It would only open doors. It wouldn't shut any. And I wouldn't have to be a lawyer. So I kind of went into law school knowing that I didn't want to practice law. Now, I still got caught up in the mix. Um, I still ended up working at a law firm for about a year. But pretty quickly, I got out of that and um, fortunately got into uh, to Halo Top and the business. And what was that inspiration for Halo Top? You know, sitting there doing what you're doing with law, did you just start kicking around ideas? Like, did you have that entrepreneurial bent? What was happening? Yeah, so interestingly, my uh, former business partner, Justin Wolverton, um, the, the founder of Halo Top, he's the one who he, he had the original recipe in his home kitchen. He was also a lawyer, just like me. Uh, we met in a lawyer basketball league, uh, as you can imagine, uh, really high quality competition with the, uh, the NBA playoffs on these days. You know, that's exactly that's exactly how we looked out there, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but we, we became friends uh, for a number of years, uh, both just kind of working at our law firms, um, playing in this basketball league. And as I was quitting my law firm, uh, he told me actually on the basketball court as we, as we were warming up for a game that he had kind of started um, this healthy ice cream in his kitchen that actually tasted good. And I, you know, immediately was like, you know, no way uh, it, it can't taste good uh, or it can't be healthy. One of the two, those are mutually exclusive. But, you know, I tried it. Um, I was really impressed. And it was at a time when you know, I was leaving the law firm and he really needed, you know, a, a partner to come on and, and help him, you know, raise money and scale the thing and grow the thing. So I took the leap uh, of faith. And I think both of us naively thought, and we can get into this, that it was going to be easy, that this was the best thing since sliced bread, that you just put it on shelves and it'll fly off shelves. And uh, man, were we uh, humbled quickly uh, on that in that uh, respect. Look at those early days, you know, you both were coming from the legal profession, you know, one of you had kind of the original recipe, but you both had kind of similar backgrounds from a professional standpoint. How did you think about dividing up what each of you were going to tackle in the business in those early days? You know, it's a great question. And I think a lot of people get caught up on this about trying to find somebody with, at least on paper, 
complementary skill sets. I think you hear a lot about that in this space. And um, it's just my two cents, but I couldn't disagree more. Um, I think it matters not about a complementary skill set, because I think nothing is rocket science and anything can be learned, but more of very similar work ethics, very similar passions, you know, very similar ways of working. I think those are the critical things in finding a successful business partner, as opposed to, you know, he's great at marketing and I'm great at supply chain, or I'm great at sales and he's great at finance or what have you, because none of us were great at anything at the time. We, we again, had to learn everything from the ground up. But again, for, you know, my experience at least, and that stayed true as we grew, right? You know, as we um, started growing and, and had to hire people, I found out the hard way that hiring somebody based on a resume, you know, who has a decade of marketing experience, is often, not always, but often a way worse hire than just hiring somebody who is younger and hungrier and less experienced, but, you know, has that go-getter mentality, uh, will do anything and everything, and will work their ass off. And, you know, that was uh, that was surprising to me. And, and we made plenty of mistakes. I, I definitely learned that one the hard way. But, yeah, so I, I in terms of how we divided it up, uh, it started with him um, on finance and marketing. I was on sales and ops or supply chain. And as we kind of got bigger, that, you know, division uh, stayed true for the most part. I think finance, we did bring on a finance department. Some of the R&D moved over um, under me, under the kind of supply chain piece. But that's kind of how we divided it up early on. But it wasn't because of any experience by any means. So you're digging in a little bit more on that point that you made on the resume and the experience. You know, resume can often be the, it's a shortcut you know, for what somebody's background is, can they do the job? It's a lot more difficult to uncover in the process somebody's, you know, attitude, drive, what, you know, motivates them. How did you really uncover that and find the right talent, you know, starting first with your co-founder, but then as you guys grew Halo Top, that people had that right mindset that went beyond just the resume that was, uh, you could easily see? So it's really hard, obviously. And, and we, I just want to be clear, we made so many mistakes. So a lot of what I'm saying today is hindsight 2020 and, and taking the lessons learned. So don't don't think I got it right uh, the first time around. Um, I think our <laughs> our first hire uh, was famously our worst hire, and, and we had to <laughs> move on pretty quickly um, from them. But I think what, what I would look for usually is not the resume builder, you know, not somebody who's kind of done the right things or checked the right boxes, always looking for the next promotion. I think somebody who's focused on title, somebody who's focused on promotion, things like that, you, you are just huge red flags for me, as opposed to somebody who's just like, I will join for anything. I don't care about my title. I don't even care about my salary. I just want to help. I'm so fired up about what you guys are doing. You know, what can I do? Um, if you can find that type of person, jump and hold on to them for dear life. They will be the best uh, hire that you ever make. And the other thing I'd say, again, this is a little either counterintuitive or maybe goes against conventional wisdom, but I think friends and family are the best hires if it's the right, and this isn't a hard one, if it's the right friend or family member. But I think those are people who you know intimately and who know you intimately. They're people who you, in theory, can trust, who can trust you, and also people who will treat it as more than a job. Um, and, and I think that that's a huge part of startup life is somebody who treats it as more than a job. You mentioned that when your co-founder kind of first brought the idea, you were a little skeptical that the, it could taste as good as ice cream, et cetera. And you probably face that same thing with consumers early on. 
how did you guys overcome that and really help people see that this better for you product could also be better tasting? Well, at first we didn't, Dave. We, uh, <laughs> we, we, we spent the first probably three years, three plus years, uh, really struggling with customer retention. For basically every customer we acquired, we lost one. So it was kind of like pouring water into a leaky bucket. And the problem was the product quality wasn't good enough. It was chalky. It was icy. It was, you know, just too much of a compromise in terms of taste and texture from the full calorie ice creams of the world. So after really slogging it for kind of three years, you know, just going through the dark, dark, dark days of, of startup life that, that virtually every entrepreneur does or goes through, we came out of the other side with a, a, a massive reformulation. Uh, and at the same time, we rebranded. Now, the reformulation was, was uh, fairly straightforward in terms of what we were trying to do. We wanted it to perform in terms of taste and texture, just like the full calorie ice creams. The rebrand was strategic in the sense of we, of course, wanted to better communicate our messaging, um, which it was healthy ice cream, low calorie ice cream. So we slapped the calories right on the front, which at the time was, was very novel and hadn't been done before and was disruptive visually um, in terms of, you know, nobody had seen that in the set before. But more importantly, it gave us time rather than try to go back and gain customers we lost. We just focused on acting like this was a new brand and a new product and, and just focused on customers who had never heard of us so that we could kind of make the first impression uh, the right way, uh, which we had not done with kind of the old brand and the old formula for the first three years or so. So, you know, once you got to that stage, the business, you know, went up and to the right and you end up selling the business in 2019. Was it always the plan to have an exit, you know, that relatively quickly or how'd you guys decide? It definitely was the plan. We, we from day one, um, said, hey, we want to sell this in the next five to seven years. We do not want to be uh, the metaphorical or literal Ben and Jerry's. We didn't want to be Doug and Justin, you know, selling ice cream 60 years from now. Now, I say this and I'm, I'm running the, the international business and I might be selling ice cream 60 years from now. So who, who knows what happens? But it was definitely our intention to exit um, from day one. What was really interesting, again, about our story, Dave, is is we we had crazy growth where we went from two million in gross sales in 2015 to more than 350 million in, in retail dollar sales in 2017. So that's over a two year period from two to 350 plus, and it's the most incredible growth curve I've ever seen, and 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 to be you know a part of it and, and have a seat there at the table. Um, it was amazing. The downside was we kind of grew too quickly to be acquired in the sense or to be acquired for billions of dollars, you know, so to speak. So it, it, when you grow that quickly, it's not as, as linear as, you know, from two to 20 to 50 to 75 to 100. You know, that, that's a that's a more standard growth curve that companies can wrap their heads around from two to 300. Nobody could really wrap their head around it. So we got an offer in 2017 to sell the company for $50 million, 50 million, five zero. Needless to say, we walked out of the room pretty upset uh, with that offer. Uh, we actually said, did you, did you mean 500? Did you mean another zero on there? Like, what do you mean 50? And then in 2018, 2019, we actually faced year over year declines because that's when the competition entered the market. That's when our first to market advantage, which effectively is a monopoly, you know, capitalism, uh, God bless it, started to, uh, to eat away at it. And, then you're on the other side of the growth curve. So even if you do say $250 million like we were doing, that doesn't look as great when you did 300 the year prior. 
So we had a really difficult sales process, honestly, because we kind of grew too quickly to sell at a peak. And then we had to sell while we were trying to explain, you know, a year over year decline and, and how we were stabilizing the business. So it was definitely always the plan, but it, um, you know, the best laid plans often go awry, uh, as they say, and of mice of men. Yeah, that makes total sense. So with that in mind, I mean, you guys grew so fast. You're a young entrepreneur. You're, you know, thinking already about what you're doing next. How have you taken those lessons about the growth that you witnessed with Halo Top and the unintended consequences, if you will, and thought about them for, you know, your next company with Gatsby or, you know, the entrepreneurs that you invest in or mentor? So it's another great question. And the further removed I get from Halo, from what I now call legacy Halo Top in, in this sale, honestly, the luckier it feels. And, and I don't mean that that it wasn't deserved because my God, it was, we, we worked our tails off. Um, and, and I do believe you make your own luck in life, but it does feel like that one was, was as thin as a razor's edge in terms of being, you know, successful or failing. And we fortunately fell on the right side of that razor or of that edge um, on the side of success. This time around, starting with our company and our people and our team, we had never set a company culture. At, at Legacy Halo Top, we had never memorialized a company mission or any of these documents that as you grow and scale become so important because at some point you don't have a personal relationship with everybody and they don't have a personal relationship with you. So it really kind of gets out of control. And, and we were so hell-bent on being um, what we called anti-corporate and, and not having these corporate formalities and not having this bureaucratic you know, machine that that bogged everything down and slowed everything down. We wanted to stay nimble and all that. I I guess what I've learned in hindsight is there's a balance that that it is critically important to provide a really solid foundation in terms of people and team and culture and mission on which you can build, um, which I think we we have done. I hopefully um, uh, Zenda and some of the other team members can attest to this in a much better way this time around. That then. You know, when you face tough times, as everybody does, and as we already have at, at Gatsby Chocolate, um, you know, you can at least sit back on that really solid foundation and it's not a house of cards. Um, and it, it can really, you know, kind of be the guiding light through through the dark days, the North Star that you look to. So that was number one. Number two, and I still struggle with this one, is the really focusing on the process and not the results, the journey, not the destination, focusing on only what you can control, not what's out of your control. It, it's a challenge for me, I think for anybody, we're all human, um, to block out that external noise, to you know, not focus on your competitors, to not be on LinkedIn and see you know, who just raised $10 million at, for some Series A, this or that. It can be so poisonous to morale, to your mind state, um, to have all of that noise in there, as opposed to just focusing on what you do best, focusing on what your team does best, and 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 really focusing on the process and controlling what you can control. Which, again, is part of our company, part of our mission, but um, is is something that's it's just really hard to have the discipline to do that. So to me, it's kind of about revisiting that regularly and instilling an organizational and an individual discipline around that um, aspect of it. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. 
Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. Given everything with Halo Top and you know, kind of that journey you said of the super, super fast growth, the couple difficult years after that from maintaining the exit process, what motivated you to jump back in and to launch Gatsby uh, so quickly as your next journey? It's such a great question because I'm telling you, at the end of Halo Top, Dave, I, I was done. I, I was literally in the middle of a mental breakdown. And I, I mean that. It'd be like 2 p.m. on Wednesday and I would just start crying. And um, I just can't tell you how broken I was as a person. Like I, it, had, it had broken me, the stress and the pressure. And the, we hadn't taken any, any money off the table. So there was a personal bankruptcy looming if we didn't exit in addition to the business bankruptcy. You know, there was just all of this stress and pressure and, and why the hell would I get back in after is such a great question. Um, and looking at that fresh now sitting where I sit today in a much better space, uh, it really came down to I forgot how hard this was. I, I, I had romanticized my favorite days of startup life are, are the grind, are the early days when it's just you and a small team. You know, it's so intimate. Um, it's so intense, but it it's my absolute favorite. But I definitely had forgotten just how damn hard it is. <laughs> um, and, you know, now we're, what, a year and a half, two years into this thing the second time around. And, and man, have we gone through trials and tribulations. But I do find myself enjoying it so much more because there is a team, uh, because I've opened up more in terms of um, leaning on people, leaning on the team, letting people in to let them know kind of what I'm going through, what I'm thinking. I hadn't done any of that. I'd really isolated myself at Legacy Halo Top. And, you know, it's it's lonely, very lonely when you do that. So this time around, in terms of why I got back in, I, I think it was because I had romanticized the early days and forgotten just how hard they are. Um, but now that I'm back into it, I, I couldn't be happier uh, to be. But um, it is not easy. I'll tell you that. So with that, what led you to jump in and look at chocolate? And, you know, not just chocolate bars, but all of the places that you're uh, you're playing with Gatsby. Why was that the space you want to tackle? Yeah. So for us, we uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic, like a lot of people, it stopped us in our tracks, um, particularly us, you know, a U.S. based company trying to run an international business at the time because we were running Halo Top International. And what it did was it essentially allowed us to set up a more efficient structure to run the international business, you know, relying on distributors and um, sub-licensees and, and other kind of in-market partners uh, so that a lot of the work was on them and not us, which just made more sense. And with the extra time that the team found ourselves with, we said, well, hey, what do we want to do? Um, we, we had a non-compete, so we couldn't get back into ice cream, but anything outside of ice cream was fair game. So we looked at a lot of categories. We looked at a lot of dairy categories like a cheese or butter, even cream cheese. We looked at uh, whipped cream. We looked at cereal. We looked at pasta. Um, ultimately, we settled on chocolate for a couple of reasons. Number one, there wasn't any other low-calorie chocolates out there. So even the low-sugar chocolates, like Lily's, uh, if you or anybody's heard of that one, even they have almost as many calories as like a Hershey's or a Lent or a Ghirardelli. So we said, man, that, that's a huge opportunity 
um, in a massive category that is chocolate first ever low calorie chocolate uh, that can be, you know, half the calories compared to not only Lent and Ghirardelli, but we're also half the calories compared to Lily's. So that was number one. There was a huge gap there in terms of calories. Um, and then number two was size of prize that the, the category was big enough. Um, unlike, you know, say, I don't know, whipped cream or cream cheese or cheesecake or something like that, that was, you know, much smaller, more niche categories. Chocolate, uh, the, the data we saw um, essentially said the chocolate market in the U.S. is twice as big as the global ice cream market. So we figured, man, what a, what a fun category to play in. And then, you know, I, I don't know, what's more fun than, you know, candy and chocolate. And, and there's so many different types of confections and, and, you know, sky's the limit with, you know, the, the innovation piece here and where we can take it, which is really fun to think about. So think about that innovations piece. Um, you know, you had the insight of what was missing from the market. How do you start bringing that to life? And how do you think about the the innovation pipeline of where you can go in this massive category? Yeah, well, it starts with a core product and a core formula. So we spent over a year developing our recipe. And this is where you try to do everything you can to cut calories. So, uh, you know, this isn't rocket science to, to people in this space, but you try to cut the sugar where you can, you try to maybe add protein where you can, add fiber where you can, cut the fat where you can. And you try at the end of the day, the product in my mind has to be mind-blowingly good. Uh, to where the product itself will retain virtually everybody who tries it because they're just blown away by how great it is in terms of taste and texture and nutrition. Once you do that, step two or kind of phase two of innovation to me, I, I, I think about it, uh, about being innovative across multiple dimensions. So fine, you've created, as we have, a, a sea salt extra dark chocolate bar. Well, everybody has that flavor in that format in the set. Now, nobody has our a caloric play, uh, like I was saying, but what else can we do to push the envelope when it comes to flavor, when it comes to format, in addition to nutrition? So how do you become innovative across multiple dimensions, I think is, is the key. And that's where in the near term, you'll see a, a lot of new products come out that hopefully not only do they have the kind of nutritional play, but they also will really surprise everybody um, and delight everybody with something that's very new in terms of flavor or format and things like that. After nearly a decade in the you know, food and beverage industry as a whole, you know, what do you think the biggest trends are going to be, not just in the space you're playing now, but the, the category overall? You know, I think more and more you'll see, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's not um, going to surprise anybody to, to say, hey, plant-based and sustainability, I think, are here to stay um, in, in a big way. Um, there's other stuff like keto that I think is probably, I would consider more of a fad than a trend in the sense of, you know, I think uh, it, weight loss and weight management comes down to caloric intake. And I think that's what that's what will last. Something I've seen started to see that I think is really interesting in the U.S. market is I think you'll see more international flavors and formats. So um, particularly Asian flavors and formats. So I think you'll see that, you know, not just innovation within, say, ramen, but I think you'll see mochi come out and be more prevalent elsewhere i think you'll see a lot of latinx uh, flavors and formats come out so i think you'll see even in chocolate you can see this now but you'll see like you know a honey habanero you'll see you know a chili dark chocolate you know that kind of stuff i think that that i actually think will be a really big trend um for the next you know 10 years or so i think is is those international flavors and formats i think the u.s consumer is becoming much more interested with that and, and moving away from, you know, maybe kind of the 
what I would consider kind of the core, also boring flavors and formats that have been around for, you know, 10, 20, 100 years, vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, you know, kind of the, the staple, so to speak. So earlier in the conversation, you you mentioned that it's not important about finding that person that's complimentary, that nothing in this space is rocket science. You just have to learn as you do. And you had to do that as you went from 2 million to you know 300 million plus in sales, running supply chain operations, things you'd never really done in your past. How do you suggest an entrepreneur that's just getting started out, how do they go figure out those things that they don't even know they don't know and go learn and start tackling them? I think it starts with outside the box thinking. And I think there's a couple of tactics that you can do. Number one, I think you just have to have like this insatiable desire to learn. You need to want to talk to anybody and everybody and just learn about who they are and what they're doing and, and how they do it and why they're doing it. You can introduce me to, you know, Joe Schmo, who I don't know, does something that maybe doesn't seem interesting. And I, if I haven't done it before, I'd be interested. I'd want to know, you know, what are you doing? How do you do it? Why do you do it? That kind of stuff. I think that that has to be in your DNA. Um, and then in terms of being outside the box, I think really going in with that beginner's mind um, or using, you know, first principles logic um, is something that's often talked about with Elon Musk and the Silicon Valley um, people. But I think that, you know, being able to come in and just question, just say, hey, why, why are you doing that again? Um, why is that important? Um, and then being able to not accept their answer as gospel, but then think through their answer and say, hey, does that make sense? Does that conventional wisdom still make sense? Or is there a different or better way to think about this or do this? I think that's the crux of of innovation and, and, and finding gaps and, and finding um, places that, that you can really have an opportunity to do something special. With Halo Topper Gatsby, what was uh, an instance where you asked that question and something remarkable came out of it? A good one with Halo Top was uh, this was back in the day. It's still relevant given where the show is, what the show has become. But in 2013 and 2014, Expo West was big. Um, it wasn't <laughs> what it is now, but this is like this biggest, the big natural products uh, food expo, food and beverage expo that happens in Anaheim every year, and it's the talk of the town in the industry. Um, everybody um, goes, and uh, we were told uh, as a brand that nobody knows about that you know you have to go. Um, and, and we'd ask why, and, you know, nobody to have an answer to that. It's just, you have to go. Everybody does it. So we went in 2013 and then we went in 2014 and that was the last year we went. Um, and the reason we stopped was it cost a ton of money. It, it takes a lot of time. And when cash is all you have as a startup, that time and money was better spent with me flying around the country, trying to meet in person in the head office of these different buyers uh, in their offices uh, for, you know, 15, 30 minutes um, presenting the Halo Top brand to them in that environment. And we weren't getting the sales. We weren't getting, no buyers even really wanted to be at Expo West. You know, it's a zoo. They kind of get walked around and they don't really want to be there. But we were told at the time, our broker fired us. They said, you have to do this or else. All investors told us we had to do it. Literally everybody in the end, there wasn't one person who said, hey, you should really think about not doing uh, Expo West. So th that was one of the things that us as outsiders, we were able to really question that conventional wisdom and say, hey, what? Th this doesn't make any sense. If the point of this is to generate sales and to get distribution, it's not working. And, and there's a better way to do that. And let's let's explore that. So that was a really practical one. Um that again, I think more and more people have started to do that. And we do trade shows at Gatsby. We have our first trade show coming up, but the purpose is not sales anymore. The purpose is not distribution. We're kind of treating it, 
you know, as our corporate retreat almost and, and to have fun and to be together as a team and, and to do team building. So that makes a ton of sense as far as I'm concerned, because a trade show is a great, you know, event to kind of organize the camaraderie and team building stuff around. But in terms of getting distribution, in terms of getting sales, not the case. Uh, and I still think not the case. But, you know, again, I a lot of people probably disagree with me on that opinion still, but that's the decision that we made and, and we were only able to make it, you know, being kind of a beginner and, and naive almost and, and outside the box that was, you know, this is how you have to do it. You know, speaking about distribution, things have changed a lot since, you know, the the decade when you started into the space with Halo Top. And today brands have retail, they have direct to consumer, they have Amazon, they have, you know, everything else in between. How do you think about what that balance is for an emerging brand like Gatsby? For me, I think it it starts with, so I think any brand, number one, it starts with your product. It's not worth acquiring a customer unless and until your product will retain that customer. So if you haven't reached that threshold, us included, I wouldn't spend $1 or one second of time acquiring anybody. Once you have reached that threshold, then I think you look at those different revenue verticals you just mentioned, your D2C, your wholesale, and I don't know, some brands look at retail at like, you know, scoop shops and other things like that too. And I think it's critical. And again, I think a lot of brands don't do this because of tech. I think a lot of people or a lot of money that used to go into tech now flows into food and beverage. And the problem with that, as I see it, is there's not nearly as much focus on profitability, particularly your unit economics, you know, a healthy gross margin, because um, then it just comes down to volume but also your profitability as a whole. I think the focus is usually on revenue and multiples of revenue, and, and that's what your valuation is based on. But I know brands, really successful brands from the outside looking in, that still aren't profitable, aren't even close to profitable. I know brands that are losing tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And some of them are now public companies. And that's just crazy to me. And that's not to say you can't have success that way, but I do think if you think about success, you can try to catch lightning in a bottle, which is like winning the lottery. And again, that's in a lot of ways how legacy Halo Top feels to me. Or you can try to position yourself for the best chance at success to make it probable instead of lucky that it happens. And I think if you focus on profitability, particularly those unit economics uh, within the revenue channels, I think that's that's the critical piece. you know. And don't don't chase millions of dollars in D2C revenue, for example, if it's going to cost you more to get that. And I know a lot of brands that are doing 15 million, 20 million in sales. And guess what? It's costing them 15 million, 20 million in marketing to get those sales. So you're doing all this work and all this effort, and you're kind of just a hamster on a wheel because at the end of the day, you still have zero uh, or less uh, if it's not profitable. So I think that's that's something that, that we definitely learn the hard way and are, are paying very close attention to uh, at Gatsby. So with that in mind, what's next for Gatsby as you look at the year ahead? You know, we have basically quarterly product launches coming out. So we have a number of new products coming out on July 1st, October 1st, January 1st. Um, I, I couldn't be more excited to release our July 1st products because that will include our first batch of, of products that, again, I think pushes the envelope on flavor and format and gives people something they've never seen before in the chocolate category, which really excites me. And then beyond that, it's just exciting to think about where else can it go beyond chocolate? You know, can it, can it go into other categories? Can it go into other aisles in the grocery store? I think that that's a really fun thought process to think about. And ultimately, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But um, I think we are, it feels like we're on the cusp 
both internally and externally of something really special here. So again, there's no guarantees of success ever, but hopefully we're positioning ourselves for the best chance at it. And we'll, we'll see how the chips fall. Perfect. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up the conversation. It's uh, been amazing learning about the journey with Halo Top, the lessons you learned and you know, how you're applying that in the, the second act with Gatsby. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. This was a, this was a fun conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.